Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all again. Hope you're traveling well and having a good weekend. And uh, I wanted this morning just to add my thanks to our wonderful singers and musicians who led us so well in worship this morning. Aren't you grateful for the team that creates space for us and allow us to encounter God? We we really are. We know it's an enormous amount of time and energy that you invest into uh, serving us in that way. And we know you don't do it for appreciation and validation, but we're deeply grateful for it. So big thank you to you and everyone serving across the various spaces and places in the building today. We're so thankful for your service. And thank you, Pete, for all that incredibly valuable information about this really important conversation around mental health and wellness. I'm so glad that as a church, we're actively leaning into this space and encouraging people to be both ready and willing to have those conversations with uh, friends and family and colleagues because it really is an important aspect of our overall kind of health and well-being. So really encouraged by that and and grateful to be together with you again today as we are uh, halfway through this series called The Way of the Wise. And it's all about the wisdom of God contained in the Word of God that's there to empower us to live lives that better honor God. And last week, Pastor Daniel spoke to us about God's wisdom for our wealth. And today I want to talk to you about God's wisdom for your marriage and for your parenting and for your friendships and for your work relationships and for your mental health, for your emotional well-being, for your spiritual vitality and for your overall general happiness, (laughs) all in one sermon, all right? And that's because today what I want to talk to you about really does have the potential to profoundly and positively impact every single one of those areas that I've just mentioned. And that is because today we're talking about wisdom and your words, wisdom and your words. Now, I wonder if you can think back to a moment when somebody said something nice to you about you, the last time somebody gave you a compliment, uh, hopefully you can remember a time like that, and hopefully it wasn't so long ago that it's barely, you know, remembering. Um, I, I want to, as you recall that moment, to think about the emotion that it left you with. How did it make you feel? What kind of feeling came to the surface of your soul when somebody said something good to you about you? Uh, you, you may be struggling to recall that moment or even to recall that feeling, not necessarily because nobody's ever said anything nice to you, just simply because as human beings, we have this kind of natural propensity to gravitate towards negativity for some reason. So we tend to remember the negative things people say about us rather than the positive things. In fact, if 10 people gave you a compliment today before you left this building and only one person walked up to you and criticized you, I guarantee you, you'll go home thinking about that one negative, nasty statement. I don't know what it is about us as human beings, why we're wired that way, but we just tend to think more negative thoughts than we think positive thoughts and we tend to kind of hold on to the negative things people say rather than the positive things. But what it does kind of communicate to us is that words do have weight, And the weight of words differ. Not all words have an equal weight. And to some degree, the weight of a word is determined by things like culture and by context. Um, I remember a number of years ago, when I first arrived here in Australia, I was serving on staff at a church up in the northern suburbs. And uh, we were in a church gathering, just like this one. It was on a Sunday night. And I wasn't due to speak that night, but the guy that uh, was working alongside on staff there was due to preach. And we were both sitting on the front row. And just before he got up to preach, I kind of nudged him and I hit him on the leg. And I said to him, mate, go well, preach up a storm tonight. Uh, I'm going to be here on the front row rooting for you. Well, he looked at me like somewhat stunned 
and then burst out laughing. And I said, what's so funny? And he couldn't kind of contain himself. He said, don't worry, I'll tell you later. And he got up on stage and he preached his sermon. Because as a new immigrant to Australia, I had no idea what that word meant here. And if you, like me, are an immigrant to this country and were not raised in the Australian cultural vernacular, then you might assume, as I did, that that phrase means I'll be supporting you. I'll be cheering you on here on the front row. Well, apparently here in Australia, it means something completely different. And if you have no idea what that phrase means, ask an Australian. <laughs> ask someone who was raised in the common kind of Australian cultural vernacular. Because words have different weight depending on the cultural context in which they're used. In fact, for some of you who are sitting here, if you were kind of raised in the common Australian vernacular, then, then you might even feel a little uncomfortable by the fact that I just used that word in church, right? Uh, words have the ability to elicit like a, a visceral response in our body. Words can make us feel relaxed or they can make us feel tense. They can make us laugh. They can make us cry. That's because words have weight. Um, I remember many years ago when I was pastoring in South Africa, I had a, a guest speaker come around to speak at the church that I was leading there. And uh, he was the head of a rather large denomination, was overseeing about 40 or 50 different churches. And uh, he was an African man. And we were sitting in the office just prior to the service and we're having a conversation and asked him, how are you going? And he said, well, it's been a pretty hard week. I said to him, why was the week so hot? And he said, well, at our facility, our sound system has just crashed. Like the whole system has just kind of broken down. I said, oh, that's, that's painful. He said, yeah, the whole thing is just effed up. And he, and he dropped the F-bomb. Like he used the F-word, right? And I was like, whoa, did I just hear right? Did he just say what I thought he said, right? This Christian brother who's leading all these churches. And then he said it again, like he used the, the phrase again. He said, yeah, the whole system is just effed up. And I suddenly realized the weight of that word to him is not the same as the weight of that word to you and to me. It, it was like him saying the system was messed up or it was stuffed up. It would, it would be the same weight, the same equivalent. Like if I said, yeah, our sound system was messed up, that was kind of the weight that he assigned to that word. And so I thought to myself, Lord, please do not let this man drop that word from the pulpit when he's preaching this morning, because that could be like a really interesting church service. I might have some explaining to do, right? But that just is the point that words have different weight. And the weight of a word is determined by the context and sometimes by the culture. And perhaps the most significant variable that determines the weight of a word is the personal factor. It's who's saying it. It's where that word is coming from. And that is why you could, you, know, you could walk through Carousel this afternoon and you could have a complete stranger, like somebody you have no idea of, somebody you've never met before, walk up to you and say, you know, I hate the way you dress. And you'd be like, well, who do you think you are <laughs> to tell me that? I don't care, right? I don't care about your opinion. It doesn't matter to me. But if your spouse said that to you, or if your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your best friend said that to you, it would be deeply hurtful because the weight of a word is determined by who is saying it that's why when, when I say to my children I love you and I'm proud of you the weight that that carries is far more significant and substantial than if it came from somebody else or somebody random right so words have weight and wisdom recognizes the weight of our words and that is precisely why James the half-brother of Jesus writing in the New Testament addresses the subject of wisdom and our words. And he does so in James chapter 3, which consists of 18 verses in total, the first 12 of which are dedicated to the subject of our words, 
And the next six deal with the subject of the nature of God's wisdom. So James is clearly trying to tie these two ideas together for us. Now, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but we'll pick it up in verse 3 of James chapter 3. He says, we can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. A tiny spark can set a forest on fire, and the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. I think you can tell already James has a flair for the dramatic, all right? He goes on to say, people can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, which I think is an interesting observation because I've never seen anyone tame a fish, right? But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. So blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. Now, if you read that passage at face value and you take it quite literally, you would be forgiven for assuming that James is telling us that that fleshy little muscle in your mouth called your tongue has a life of its own. And it's been possessed by the devil. And it's kind of running around doing its own thing without your control and without your kind of involvement. But that's clearly not what James is saying. So what is he saying? Well, importantly, to understand what James is communicating here, firstly, we need to recognize that James is employing a figure of speech called metonymy. And metonymy is when you take a word or a phrase, and you use it in place of something else related to it. So for example, if I say to you, the pen is mightier than the sword, I don't literally mean a physical pen. And I don't even mean a physical sword. That particular phrase or that statement is not even referring to a literal fight. I mean, if you rock up to a sword fight with a pen, you're in trouble. You're definitely going to come off second best. Unless you have one of those pens that James Bond has, you know, that turns into a gun or maybe can turn into a bomb, then you're going to be okay. But that phrase is not talking about a literal fight. What it's saying is the, the world of ideas, the kind of ideas that can be written with a pen or coded with a pen, are far more powerful than physical violence when it comes to resolving conflict and settling disputes. That's what the phrase means. That's metonymy. Uh, if I said to you today, uh, the White House issued a statement. How many of you know I'm not talking about the literal White House, the physical building? What I'm talking about is the American government. So in that instance, the White House, which is a literal physical entity, is used in, the, in metonymy to refer to the authority of the American government. Now, James is doing a very similar thing here in James chapter 3. When he says the word tongue... He's not talking about that fleshy little muscle in your mouth. He's talking about the entirety of your capacity for human speech, which includes more than your tongue. 
It includes your physi- physi- physiologically, your, your lips and your, your vocal cords and your facial gestures and your cheeks and your teeth and your mind. There's so much more to your capacity to speak than just simply your tongue. And so he's talking about your God-given ability to talk, to use words, to vocalize and to verbalize. And what James is trying to do here is he's trying to communicate two big important ideas about this God-given capacity. And the first is this, that spoken words have enormous power. So choose them wisely. Spoken words have enormous power. So choose him wisely. That's why in the first kind of three or four verses, in, in verse three to five, James uses a couple of metaphors that, that communicate this idea. He's saying, even though the tongue is small, it's powerful. In other words, your capacity for human speech may seem insignificant to you, but it's actually incredibly powerful and influential and therefore requires wisdom. So in the same way, he says like a tiny little spark can set an entire forest on fire. Your tongue, your capacity for speech can do an enormous amount of harm and cause an enormous amount of damage. In the same way that a tiny little rudder can steer an enormous ship, your capacity for speech has the ability to alter the course of your entire life. That is how significant it is. And so words have incredibly creative and productive power. Uh, Listen to what the Old Testament writer says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 20 to 21. He says, from the fruit of their mouth, a person's stomach is filled. With the harvest of their lips, they are satisfied. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. In other words, what the wisdom writer is saying here is that speaking words is like sowing seeds. Every single day, you and I are sowing word seed into the soil of our lives. And we're sowing word seed into the soil of the lives of the people we love and the people we live with. Family members, friends, work colleagues. And the scripture is encouraging us here to think about the nature of the seed we sow. Because whatever you sow, you reap. And whatever you reap, you will eat of. You will eat the fruit of your lips. You will eat the harvest of your spoken word. And for some, that fruit will be sweet, and for others, that fruit will be bitter. So take a moment to just consider what word seed you have been sowing into your life of late. Think about the nature of the word seed that you've been sowing into the heart and mind of your children, or into the heart and mind of your spouse, or your work colleagues, or your friends. What kind of seed have you been sowing? Have you been sowing the sweet, juicy seed of the mango? Or have you been sowing durian seed? (laughs) What kind of seed are you sowing? Are you sowing good seed or are you sowing bad seed? Because whatever seed you sow is going to determine what you reap. So our words, spoken words, have productive capacity, like seeds, which are small, They have the power to produce and to produce life. Not only that, our words also have the power to create. Listen to this interesting statement, again, from the wisdom writer in the Old Testament in Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 19, talking about the relationship between wisdom and the spoken word. He says, by wisdom, the Lord founded the earth. 
And by understanding, he created the heavens. And a little later on in chapter 8 of the same book, we have wisdom now personified in the first person speaking. And in verse 22 to 30, this is what wisdom says. I, wisdom, was there when he, God, established the heavens. When he drew the horizon on the oceans, I was there. When he set the clouds above, when he established springs deep in the earth, I was there. When he set the limits of the sea so that they would not spread beyond their boundaries. And when he marked off the earth's foundations, I was the architect at his side. Isn't it interesting that the scriptures are telling us that when God created the world, it was the result of his wisdom coupled with his spoken word. It was the combination of wisdom and spoken word that literally brought the universe into being. And as human beings created in the image and likeness of God, you and I have been endowed with the same creative capacity. The ability to combine wisdom with word in order to create. Now, I want to qualify that because I want to be absolutely clear about this. I am not suggesting for a moment that you and I have some kind of magical, mystical ability to create material reality by just simply speaking it out. Uh, back in the 70s and 80s, when the kind of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel came onto the scene, there were people who were trying to say that. That if you want a Lamborghini, that's great. All you need to do is name it and claim it. Just speak it out and speak it out as regularly and as often as you can, and eventually it'll become yours. You can manifest your physical reality by just speaking it out. Well, give that a go and see how well that works for you, right? You'll very quickly work out that's just not possible. But our words do have the ability to create. Our words can create emotions in others. Our words can create perceptions, both in us and in others. Our words can create beliefs. Our words can create ideas. And all of those things, beliefs, ideas, convictions, emotions, have the ability to shape not only our subject of reality, but our object of reality, how we experience the material world. Words have incredibly creative power. So you have to think carefully about how you use them. Of course, the converse is true as well. Not only can words create, but words can destroy. They not only have creative power, they have destructive power. So listen to this admonition from the wisdom writer in Proverbs 26, verse 18 to 19. He says, like a madman shooting flaming arrows of death is the one who deceives his neighbor and then says, I was only joking. Have you ever had anyone do that to you? Like say something really mean or unkind or nasty and then turn around and say to you, I was only joking. Ever happened to you? How did that feel when they try to cover over that nastiness with a thin veil of humor? Did it make it any better? Did it make it hurt less? No, not at all. And the wisdom writer is telling us if you speak in that way to someone, if you say something untrue or unkind or hurtful or hateful and then try to cover it over with humor, you are like a madman throwing firebrands, arrows and death at that person. It's like husbands, if your wife comes into the room one day and she says, honey, do these jeans make my bum look big? And you say, no, darling, your bum makes those jeans look small. <laughs> I'm only joking. No, you are like a madman <laughs> throwing firebrands, arrows and death. And all the wives said, amen. <laughs> 
Or if your husband's been working on a, a piece of art, maybe taking up painting, and you come home, and, and, and the painting's on the table, and your husband says, what do you think? And you, and you say to him, did you do that? I, oh, sorry, I thought one of the kids did that. <laughs> I'm only joking. No, you are like a mad woman <laughs> throwing firebrands, arrows, and death. Right? You cannot cover over hurt and hate and deceit with humor. So we have to think carefully about the way we use our words because our words can either hurt or they can heal. They can build up or they can break down. They can bind or they can release. They can impart life or they can impart death. They can make people laugh or they can make people cry. They can leave people feeling exhilarated and inspired or exhausted and discouraged. Our words are incredibly powerful. And it's precisely because they are powerful that they need to be controlled. Right? You would never take... A five-year-old and hand them a chainsaw and fire it up because that five-year-old would not have the ability to handle that much power. You wouldn't take your 10-year-old and put him behind the seat of a Ferrari and hand him the keys because a five-year-old or a 10-year-old would not be able to handle that much power. The more power, the greater the need for control. And that is precisely why the wisdom of God encourages us towards control. Now, you would have noticed James has said, no man can tame the tongue in verse 8. James is not saying that we have no ability to be intentional or deliberate about the words we choose. We are not at the mercy of our capacity to speak. In fact, the opposite. What James is saying is that without the wisdom of God and without the grace of God and without the Spirit of God, you are going to struggle to be in control and to tame your tongue. But with the grace of God and with the power of God and with the presence of the Holy Spirit, you have this fruit of the Spirit called self-control. And to the extent that you give the Holy Spirit access to your heart and life, to that same degree, you will have this fruit manifest called self-control. And you can and should control your tongue, which is precisely why he uses the metaphors he does. In the same way that we put a small bit in the a mouth of a horse and direct that large, powerful animal, and in the same way that a tiny little rudder can steer an enormous ship, you can control your God-given capacity for speech. And given it is so powerful, it requires great control and therefore the need for wisdom. So that's the first thing James wants us to understand, that words are extremely powerful and need to be chosen wisely. And then lastly and secondly, James wants us to understand that spoken words have particular purpose. And so we are to use them appropriately. Spoken words have a particular purpose. And so it's important that we use them appropriately. See here, verse 9 to 12 is the key to understanding what James is saying. Because in this little section of James chapter 3, he gives us three rhetorical questions. And the answer to these rhetorical questions is obviously no. So he says, does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh and bitter water? Obviously not. Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. And what James is trying to tell us here is that God creates everything with purpose. And the purpose of the created thing tells us something about its essential nature. So vines produce grapes, fig trees produce figs, olive trees produce olives, and fresh springs produce fresh spring water. Now, whenever you take something that was created by God 
with purpose. And you use it for a purpose other than that for which God created it. You subject that created thing to ungodly, unholy, unrighteous influence. Which is why James says in verse 6 that the tongue has the power to be set on fire by hell is the phrase he uses. In other words, he's saying your God-given capacity for speech can be subject to ungodly, unholy, unrighteous, even demonic influence. When you take your God-given capacity for speech and you use it for a purpose other than that for which God created it. So the obvious question becomes, well, then why did God create speech? Why did God give you that ability? And I'll tell you why not. I'll tell you what the purpose of your speech isn't. It's not to berate. It's not to belittle. It's not to abuse. It's not to exploit. It's not to hurt. It's not to harm. It's not to demean. It's not to lie. It's not to curse God and to curse others. It's not to mock or to discourage or to ridicule. No. The purpose of your speech is, number one, to honor God, to bless Him, to glorify Him, to honor Him, to give Him thanks, to give Him appreciation, to vocalize, to verbalize your commitment to Him and your love for Him, which is precisely why every time we get together like this on a Sunday, we take the first 15 or 20 minutes to sing together. Well, we don't do that just so that everyone has enough time to get the kids checked in and their cars parked. That's not the purpose of it. We do that so that we have opportunity to vocalize and verbalize our love for God and our commitment to Him and our appreciation for Him. That's why we encourage you when you're here to join your voice together with those who are on stage, to, to give expression to the love that you have in your heart for God, to break the sound barrier and to join in with the singing and with the praying because it's why you were made. It's part of the purpose of your God-given speech, right? Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. The writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore, by Him, that is by Jesus, let us continue, continually offer up the sacrifices of praise, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Right? God wants us to bring a sacrifice, not of uh, goats or sheep or offerings of food and harvest, as in the Old Testament. God wants us to bring a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks. So number one, it's to honor God, and number two, it's to bless others. The purpose of your God-given speech is to encourage, to exhort, to commend, to inspire, yes, to admonish and to challenge, but to do so in love. It's to speak life and blessing into others. Listen to Paul's encouragement in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 and 29. He says, so... Stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. Don't use foul and abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Right? Paul's saying, listen, recognize that your God-given ability to speak is there so that you can impart life to your hearers. Encouragement, exhortation, faith, hope, joy, and grace. And finally, Proverbs 16, verse 23 to 24 says, The hearts of the wise make their mouths prudent and their lips promote instruction. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Do you notice there that the wisdom writer says that the words we speak not only affect how we feel in our souls, but they have the ability to impart life to your body? That your physical, visceral experience of life, to some degree, is affected by the words you hear and by the words you say. 
And so both Paul and the wisdom writer are encouraging us to use our speech to impart life to others. Now, I'll finish with this thought. You know, I, I moved to Australia back in 2007. And uh, many of you who've known me for a while will know that I'm not originally from around here. And even if you're just meeting me today for the first time, you'll be able to discern that because of my accent. You can tell that I'm originally from South Africa by my accent. And if you've ever met a South African who's just newly arrived in Perth and you ask that South African for instructions or directions to get somewhere, this is what they'll say. They'll say something like, um, all right, if you, need, if you want to get to uh, the city, you, you have to uh, drive to the end of the street. And when you get to the first robot, turn right. And then travel for about half a kilometer. Then you'll get to a stop street. Turn left at the stop street. Travel for another three kilometers. Then you'll get to another robot. And when you're at that robot, go right through. And then that's how they talk, right? Because in South Africa, a traffic light is a robot. So they call it a robot. I know, it's weird, eh? I don't know why they do that, but they do. So you can tell from the vocabulary and the accent that a South African is from South Africa. Now, here's the point. Your language, your vocabulary locates you. It identifies you. And I want you to consider for a moment, when it comes to the way you speak, does your vocabulary and your language identify you as a citizen of heaven? Would people be able to tell that you're a follower of Jesus and a member of the family of God and a representative of His kingdom here on earth by the way you speak? Is the accent of grace on your lips? Is the vocabulary of kindness on your tongue? Are you able to speak words of life, encouragement, appreciation, validation? Can you speak faith, hope, and love? Do you know the language of faith, hope, and love? Do your words locate you? And as you consider that and reflect on that, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer that David prayed in Psalm 19, verse 14. It's a prayer for wisdom. And it's a prayer that I pray often, and I want to encourage you to pray often. And he said this, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, may everything I say be life and grace to those who hear it. Because spoken words have so much power. And spoken words have a very particular purpose. So choose them wisely and use them appropriately. Friends, the wisdom of God says, change your words and you will change your world. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website. Visit therocks.church.